Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Welcome, lovers of product. Today, I'm here with Ibrahim Bashir. He's the VP of product at Box. Welcome, Ibrahim. Nice to be here, Eric. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So why don't we kick this all off by getting a quick little overview of your background? Sure. I guess, uh, stop me if I'm going way too far back, but uh, I guess from a very early age, you know, was uh, had a computer in the home. And so I've been a little bit computer obsessed from an early age. Ended up sort of studying a little bit of programming when I was in high school, you know, built some early websites. Uh, my first programming language uh, that I dabbled in was Pascal. And, you know, I got connected with some good mentors and teachers who said, hey, if you really want to do this seriously, you, you want to study computer science in college. So I did computer science in undergrad and grad school, thought I wanted to be a software developer forever. My first real job as a software developer, I ended up asking a lot of questions as to like, what are we building? Why are we building it? Who are we building it for? Which really got me on going on this career journey where I realized that what I was interested in was problem solving and less writing code. And so I did a bunch of career U-turns from there where you know, I went into like development management, software architecture, did a five-year stint in consulting. And then uh, really after my consulting gig, I actually sat down and thought very thoughtfully about what I really wanted to get out of my career. And after a lot of soul searching, I realized I wanted to work on products that really had impact. And so that was the first moment where I actually made like career choices with a customer mindset in mind. And so I remember actually sitting on vacation one time and thinking, what are some products that I just find fascinating that I would actually want to work on? And it was a very short list. It was uh, the Kindle at Amazon. It was Twitter, which was, you know, in the early days back then, and it was Netflix. And so I just kind of made up my mind that I was going to work on those products versus just go where sort of the career trajectory takes you. And so I, I very diligently sort of went after Amazon, got an opportunity to work on the Kindle, did that for a couple of years. Then I went to Twitter, helped Twitter scale both as a company and as a technology stack. Eventually interviewed at Netflix, but didn't get the offer. <laughs> and now I'm at Box. Awesome. So let, let's talk a little bit about that. Tell me about your time in Amazon working on Kindle. What was it like? What did you do? What, did, what were your big learnings from there? Yeah. So I guess the first biggest learning was I had never been a PM like in an official sense before Amazon, right? I had done flavors of what you'd call product management, which is, you know, gathering requirements, talking to customers, solving problems, working cross-functionally. But it was really my, my first boss at Amazon who really sort of saw the potential because I was, I was very nervous. Like I really wanted to work at Amazon. I really wanted to work on the Kindle, but I sort of didn't believe that I could actually do it. And so the talk he gave me sort of right before I started was, hey, what do you do all day in consulting? And I was like, you know, I get airdropped into semi-hostile situations where a bunch of people who don't really like each other have to work together to solve a problem. Otherwise, they might go out of business. And he was like, yeah, that's basically PMing in Amazon. <laughs> and so I, I guess what I worked on was a bunch of strategic efforts and products on hardware, software, services, and content. So the, the first thing I worked on was, um, they used to call it the Toyota Camry of e-readers. Today it's called the third generation Kindle. But basically, if you're ever like on public transport or on an airplane and you see somebody reading this like 10-year-old Kindle, it's going to be around forever. It was like the most durable device. It has every feature you could want. And it was priced in a way where it was, it was meant to be mass market. And so basically, get that product out there 
And specifically, the online selling experience was my charter, was my first job. And so figuring out how the thing gets sold, how it gets turned on, how it gets shipped, how it gets activated, the initial setup experience, the user guide, the dictionary, anything and everything was my problem. And so I got that thing out the door, got to work across basically all Amazon properties because the Kindle itself is sort of a branded device that includes a bunch of different functions, right? From packaging to retail to legal. But you also get to work with a bunch of folks like the Prime team, right? Because what happens when you're a Prime customer and you buy Kindle? And so I got to do that. And then from there, I actually worked on international expansion. So first it was just taking sort of a US language, English language, US market device and selling it internationally. And then it was localizing the device and software experience and then selling it in a local website like amazon.de or amazon.fr, and then actually localizing the content store so you could have the right selection of books and the right prices, et cetera. So that was sort of my first big, you know, it's probably spent a year on, on those series of device and software launches. And then the cool thing about Amazon, I mean, you were just mentioning about Pendo earlier about, you know, if you find interesting company, you find interesting problems, you eventually get tapped on the shoulder and it's usually like, hey, Jeff has a crazy idea. And so, you know, the first crazy idea was, we want to subsidize the selling of the device based on ads. And so I just got tapped on the shoulder uh, with a team that was asked to figure out, hey, what would a ad subsidized experience look like? We ultimately landed on putting it in the screensaver and it's not called ads, it's called special offers. And basically most Kindles that are sold today are sold with that feature turned on. So that was uh, sort of a six month stint. And then I got tapped on the shoulder one day and it was, hey, Jeff has a crazy idea. He wants to build a tablet. And so the the last huge thing I did was actually launch the Kindle Fire business, which started with a tablet and then eventually ended with a platform that is now used for not just the tablet, but, you know, set-top boxes, Alexa, uh, the short-lived Fire Phone, et cetera. Awesome. So what did you learn? Tell me a little bit about what you learned from those experiences. Yeah, I think the thing I learned that wasn't really obvious in the moment was the benefits of scale. So what I mean by that is you take a lot of things for granted at Amazon. You know, you have a crazy feature idea. And a lot of these things were sort of went from idea to like launched publicly, not beta, but just like broadly launched to all customers within six months. Right. And I think we took a lot of the infrastructure for granted, the service oriented architecture for granted, the ability to sort of just move staffing and engineering resources around very quickly and nimbly for granted. And I think that what Amazon has really mastered is the ability to go after big bets quickly. And if they're paying off to double down, and if they're not to just unwind and move on to the next thing. Cool. And then you mentioned Twitter, right? That was your next stop. Tell me, talk to me about what you did there. Yeah. So the thing I really benefited from at Amazon was everybody knew what a PM was, right? I mean, it was a very hard role. It was a very strategic role, a very high leverage role, but you were never going to find anybody who didn't understand what a PM was supposed to do. And I was really curious to try something where I had to build that from scratch Um, because it's one thing to build products, but another thing to actually build a function and build a brand that doesn't really exist. And so I was actually the first PM that the engineering team at Twitter hired, right? They had a couple of people working on the consumer product. I think they had one person on the advertiser side, but engineering, you know, just several hundred people were building all this technology and there was really nobody shepherding what they were building, why they were building it or who they were building it for. And so if you think of sort of the North Star metrics of a technology product, reliability, performance, cost, et cetera, those were all the things I took on. And I did that for five years and basically got to build out a technical PM function at Twitter. That's awesome. Talk me through that process a little bit. Like you established the North Star metrics. 
Take me through doing that at Twitter. Yeah, so I think some of it is sort of bottoms up, right? Uh, you, you talk to enough people, you start to realize like where the bodies are buried and what needles the, the team is capable of moving. And there's a little bit of like, uh, not a little bit, a lot of top-down focus as well. So when I joined Twitter, it was pre-IPO. And so there's a lot of stress in the system around, hey, if we're going to go public, we have to control costs. Hey, we have to have a multi-data center story. Hey, we have to prove that the service doesn't go down. I think Twitter at that point was most famous for the fail whale, right? And so just being able to get through any planned event like the Oscars or the Super Bowl without an outage was one of the big hurdles, right? And so a lot of them kind of wrote themselves, but I don't think it was obvious to people at the time like what those North Star metrics were or actually how to rally everybody towards driving them versus talking about them as something that needed to be solved without realizing that they actually had the power to do so. Now, I mean, stepping back as you're first going into this role, product management for platform, right, for engineering, was there apprehension about the value? You know, was there a lot of change management, change issues there? Oh, absolutely. I think it could not have worked without sort of the buy-in of engineering leadership. And so it was sort of a a strange role to step into is to be hired by engineering leadership in a PM role, right? Because it was something that sort of the the consumer side of the house didn't really understand or want to fund. Engineering wanted to fund it, but I would say the vast majority of engineering was a little bit hesitant, right, as to what is this role going to be? Are these folks going to start telling us what to do? You know, all the all the general anxieties people have about a product and engineering working together were, were on full display. So talk to me about how you, you know, offset or alleviated that. Yeah, I think the, the few things, the few tips I would offer are you really have to step in and sort of take accountability, right? Without trying to push for authority or autonomy or any of that, you just have to say like, hey, I'm going to be accountable for a lot of horizontal problems that you're dealing with. And you try to find pockets to add value and build from there. And so I would say within the first month, there were two things that I took on that basically nobody wanted to touch with a 10-foot pole, but actually were critical to the existence of the company. And strangely, they were very interconnected, but nobody wanted to connect the dots because of organizational dynamics. So the two things were basically, there had been for at least 18 months, a long-running effort to decompose the monolithic Twitter application into a collection of services. And I would go around and, you know, meet new engineers and team leads and stuff. And I would ask them, hey, you know, what do you work on? And they would say, well, I I decompose the monolith. And I would say, well, why are we decomposing the monolith? And they'd say, I don't know. That's what I've been doing. I've been here a year, right? And so it was, there's this huge engineering tax on like, let's get from a monolith to a service-oriented architecture. On the other hand, the entire operations org was building out a second data center. It was like, we got to build out this data center. We got to build out this data center. And I was like, why? Well, because we build out data centers. That's what we do. And over time, I realized that in order for the service to be more reliable and actually work in a globally distributed way and have the business continuity required to go public, you needed to have multi-data centers and you needed to be decomposed into services to get to multiple data centers. And so those two things, rather than treat them as like two different silo problems, I actually just joined them together and said, this is one mega thing that all of engineering and ops needs to get behind. And I'll take all the heat from the executives as to what's happening, why it's not happening, why it's not happening at the pace it's, it should be happening, et cetera. Yeah, so you, you alleviated some of that kind of uh, yoke around their shoulders, so to speak. Yeah, and then I think the other thing sort of PMs bring is just structured thinking. So, for example, if you're trying to decompose, you know, five, six years of of software building and you're trying to figure out how to build a data center, that can feel like just sort of an insurmountable problem, right? And so one of the earliest things I did was I actually forced a discussion about what was the essence of Twitter. 
until that point, you would see sort of emails going around saying, hey, the, the data center is 37% complete. And I would say, well, how do you know it's 37% complete? And they would say, well, because the number of servers we think we need to rack, we've done 37% of that, and so that's great. But if you extrapolate that up to something that goes to the CEO or the board, they would think, oh, in an outage, 37% of Twitter traffic could be failed over. That's how they interpreted it. And they were, they were just speaking different languages. And so one of the simplest things we did early on was we actually set up an iPhone that was pointing to the second data center, and I would walk around showing it to people, and they'd be like, well, nothing works. It's 37% ready. How come nothing works? And it's like, because this 37% of everything versus 100% of one thing, right? And so we actually wrote, we rewrote the MVP of Twitter and said, what has to work if all goes to hell, right? And there was a lot of furious debates around it and leading that discussion, not just within technology and engineering, but also with consumer and ads teams was a big part of my job was like, the things that have to work are, you have to be able to tweet, you have to be able to load the tweet, you have to be able to load a link which was a huge debate for a while, but re the reality is if links don't work, the internet doesn't work because most of the links are shared on Twitter and you have to be able to see a timeline. And you just draw a very hard line and say, we're going to get this experience working in an outed scenario and then go from there. And there's all sorts of things you're saying no to, right? You're basically saying, I can't launch a new ad campaign. I can't delete an ad campaign in, during an outage and making those kinds of decisions and actually having... So not just the gravitas, but actually the the logic and the rationale as to why it has to be that way was a big part of the job. Yeah, I can understand that. Lots of lots of trade-offs that you have to coordinate there. Now, you have a highly technical background, right? Come from engineering, computer science. Talk to me about how that has helped and maybe how that has hurt you in your product management career. Yeah, I think the first thing I would say is I don't think you need a standard engineering academic background to be a successful PM. I just, I don't believe that. I think it has helped me because we all need sort of some sort of go-to at certain points, right? And so that has helped me in a lot of ways, uh, wrap my head around problems, around architecture, around debt, and to build a rapport with engineering. But there's a million different ways to sort of get the ball rolling, right? And, and to get your credibility going. So I think a lot of times in our industry, we over-index on that because it's an easy thing to over-index on. Oh, you have a CS degree from a, a good school, you must be competent, which is a, not the case. And so I've used it to my advantage at times, but I think it, it can also be a crutch at times. The other thing I would say is the, the way it kind of works against you is people start to think that your value is engaging with engineering versus all the other things that a PM is expected to do, like go to market, like strategy, like vision, like external communication, like writing copy, et cetera. And that's, I think that's just a general problem in our industry is if you're good at one thing, people want it to be about that one thing versus seeing you as sort of a, a well-rounded individual. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've, I've seen too that some people over rely on that too. The younger PMs are like, well, I'm good on the computer science side, so I'm just going to spend a lot of time with engineering and neglect those other portions of PM that are probably, you know, arguably more important. Yeah, I uh, just to riff on that for a second, I'm a firm believer in the cross-functional brand of PMing. What I mean by that is the PM is somebody that all the other functions have said, I trust you to connect the dots and to speak on behalf of us, us being engineering, product design, sales, marketing, et cetera. So I'm a huge believer in people growing up in one function and then transitioning to PM versus there being sort of a model of, oh, you know, you get a CS degree, then you get an MBA, then you're a PM. I, I, I mean, you, you can totally be a good PM that way, but I think having a functional bias is not a bad thing for a PM. Yeah, I would agree with you. So now take me through, you know, after Twitter, you end up at Box. How do you end up there? 
what are you trying to solve for Box? Yeah, and so uh, if we go back to sort of the Amazon thing really quick, I benefited from a company that knew how to scale. At Twitter, we were really trying to scale very rapidly in a very intense environment. And I think we succeeded on some dimensions, but maybe not others. And so I realized what I really wanted to do was have a shot at scaling where I was in the driver's seat, where I was like, I get to make the decisions. And uh, if it works, it's, it's on me. And if it doesn't, it's on me versus I think it was a very uh, disempowering feeling at times at Twitter to feel like you knew what had to be done, but it was just too many cooks in the kitchen, right? And so I actually looked around a little bit and realized that enterprise software in a way is actually very simple, which is you build a product and if it has value, people pay you for it, right? Um, you're not measuring eyeballs, it's not advertising, there's no proxy metrics. And so I realized I really wanted to dabble in that space. Two, I think the technical background and having built a technical PM team steered me towards developer products, right? And then three, just got a great opportunity at Box. They had a business unit within the company that was focused on a developer platform. And so the chance to run that in a very cross-functional leadership sense, sort of as a general manager, was very exciting to me, right? Because it was not just build a great product, but it was build a product and make sure there's a go-to-market motion around it, make sure that people are able to sell it, that there's revenue, that you avoid churn, that the messaging is clear. And, uh, you know, you don't get opportunities like that every day. So I jumped at it. Yeah, you mentioned churn. It's like a hot button of mine these days. How how important is that to you as a metric? Um, it's very important. I mean, if you think about it, the majority of revenue for any sort of scaled enterprise business comes from existing customers, which is they're either renewing or they're upselling, right? And so, you know, we tend to look at things like gross retention, net retention. And before I, or when I was joining Box, sort of these concepts were sort of anomalous to me because I would be like, how can you have retention over 100%. Well, that's because most of your customers are upselling, right? And so churn is very important because it can be an indicator of a lack of product value or a lack of go-to-market repeatability, which I think both those things are death, right? And I think a lot of times product teams that are creating a product that is sold tend to use revenue as a proxy for product value, which it's really not. It's really a measurement of how good your sales execution is right? Or how broad your pipeline is. And so you can sort of trap yourself. And so churn actually matters. And I spend a lot of time, not just on churn, but like prospective churn, right? Potential churn is like, why? Well, how did we end up in this state? Did we not provide value? Did you not adopt the product correctly? Did we not provide ROI in a quick enough amount of time for you to realize the value? Yeah, absolutely. I'm in complete agreement there. I think, uh, you know, net revenue retention, however you want to look at it, is a more important metric for PMs than net new ARR. Yeah, I, I would also say churn is tricky because the threat of churn drives a lot of behavior in enterprise products, right? It's, uh, I can't tell you how many times I've seen requests that are tied with, if we don't do this, then so-and-so churns. <laughs> and so your roadmap can easily be a bunch of churn prevention. And that is the challenge is when you get enough customers as you're trying to keep all of them happy with their niche requests, you end up building a product that where you're iterating around the edges versus the 80% core. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point too. And, and getting to the veracity of that feedback too, like, are they saying that? Is that true? Is it coming from a CS or salesperson? Is it coming directly out of the customer's mouth? There's a, you know, there's a lot of, I don't want to say misinformation, but there's not a, a cut and dried black and white answer to a lot of those things. I mean, there's definitely a game of telephone. And I think one of the big learnings for me over the last couple of years has been you really have to get to the heart of the feedback. Um, There's nothing wrong if the feedback comes from sales or sales engineering or customer success, but you have to sort of triple click into it and figure out 
what did the customer really mean? You use the word veracity. It's not even you're questioning whether they would actually churn, but you want to get to the root of their frustration, right? One of the things I've done is when you sit down with a customer and just go through the laundry list of all of their apps, and you sort of are very upfront with them saying like, hey, we can't do this all for you because we have another thousand customers who all have similar lists and your, your lists overlap very little. And you sort of have a dialogue with them about what the source of their frustration. You'll find out probably the top one or two things are 90% of the frustration and the rest of the list is just piling on, right? And I've seen that over and over. And yeah, and so you got to find the one thing that is really at the heart of it and then how repeatable that one thing is. Because if it is repeatable, then you should fix it because it solves a lot of customer pain. And if it's not, you might have sort of, I don't want to say a bad customer, but you might have a customer who's not your core customer, right? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I I think you find too that, you know, they come to you often with solutions like, oh, if you did this, it would solve this problem, where there might be much better ways to solve that problem. So spending the time to to dig into like, what problem are they trying to solve? Or, or when do they have this issue? You know, what were they doing when they had this issue? When did it happen? You know, brings yeah. a lot of insights. I had, um, I, I talked to a customer a couple of weeks ago that was very intently focused on a solution, which is I need a report that shows this. And I asked them, why do you need it to show that? And they're like, well, this is, this is what we're built on. And I was like, well, let's just take three steps back. If you weren't billed that way, do you even care about that report? And I looked at sort of the sales rep in the room and, and that was sort of a legacy way of billing people. And they were like, yeah, if you're not going to bill me this way, then no, I don't care about that report. And we were just like, yeah, let's just update how, how your contract is structured. And then the feature request goes away. So one interesting thing I noticed too, is you were talking about the customer too and talking to the customer, right? And you weren't just saying, oh, you know, the salesperson says they're going to churn, you know, ABC Bank's going to churn. Uh, and you're, you're not talking about just taking what the, the salesperson says, right? A lot of OPMs would be like, oh, you know, I'm doing this because sales is telling me to do this. But you actually dig into the underlying problem with the customer. And I, I think yeah. that's important for a lot of young PMs too, to realize that you need to dig into the problems deeper. Yeah, I think if I had any bit of advice for PMs early in their career, I would say get in front of customers as frequently as you can. You know, one of the weird dynamics as a product leader is you're asked to make decisions, but you don't actually have on the ground data. Like the hardest thing for me is to carve out the time to meet customers because I have 80 other things going on. And so I would love to spend more time with customers. And so what ends up happening is I actually want to delegate a lot of that decision-making to the people who have the time and the rapport with the customer, but I'm actually asked to make decisions with limited data. Yeah. Now, what advice for PMs? Like, I hear this a lot. What's a lot of time with customers? What does that mean? What what does that mean to you? Yeah, I think uh, what it doesn't mean to me is enough time to validate sort of the opinions you've already formed. I think that's sort of a backwards way to do it. I treat it more like a habit or a muscle, which is don't try to quantify it and say, I got to do at least 20 hours of customer feedback a week. No, it's more regularly get into the rhythm of listening to customers and not the same customers, but enough of a breadth of customers so that it's like a muscle that you can call on when you need it. Right. And I try to do it on two dimensions. And this is how I think about the roadmap as well, which is there's things that we need to execute on because we know it's going to move a needle, a needle that we all agree needs to be moved and it's going to move it in a disproportionate way. Right. And then there's a second order thing. And another reason to talk to customers is what else could we be moving 
the needle for them for, right? What problems that we're not currently solving or adjacent problems should we get into? And so there's like an exploration. And so I would say I like people to have both the I'm executing and I want to validate that what I'm executing on is going to solve your problem conversation. And the, I would love to solve other problems for you. Let me explore the edges of, of what we're doing for you and that kind of conversation as well. And so some, I guess that's the difference between usability testing and like open-ended research. Now, we started talking and touched on a little bit about team there. And part of team is, you know, hiring. I imagine Bay Area is still pretty competitive for product managers. Uh, I think pretty much everywhere is for good product managers. So, if you're hiring right now, you know, and you're hiring for PM, if you're giving advice to some of my listeners out there, what core qualities do you think people should look for in the candidates that they want to be PMs? Yeah, I think at this point, there's no secret sauce on like PM competencies, right? There's, there's sort of a, a handful of things that PMs have to be good for, which is able to have user empathy, starting from the customer and working backwards, either technical competency, design competency, good collaboration skills, clear communication skills bias for action, and I would say data fluency, all of those things matter. When I hire specifically, uh, I look at it from a couple of different dimensions. The first is either look for people who are world-class on one dimension, which is this person is just like head and shoulders above anybody else as a communicator, as a collaborator, as a data-driven PM, right? Or I look for them to be well-rounded across a bunch of things, right? And so um, those are sort of the two flavors of PMs I look at. And then the other thing I would say is I don't hire the same person over and over. It's very much a function of the mix of the team. And by the team, I don't mean the other PMs. I mean the team that they're going to work on, right? The marketing person, the designer, the engineering lead, the tech lead, et cetera, that group of people. So if you have an existing team where let's say the marketing person has you know, a good sense of go-to-market execution and the engineering person has good product sensibility you want to hire a PM that complements those, right? Versus if you had a team where the engineering manager was very much a people coach, but not great at sort of scoping and organizing the backlog of work, you might want to hire a PM who had that ability. And so you, I'm always looking to round out the team versus hire a cookie cutter character. Yeah. So you're looking for like a, a mosaic of skill sets for one of a better term immediately. Yeah. And then what that does is, um, you know, there's the teams where work actually happens and then there's a reporting structure. So I have a bunch of PMs who report to me. What that does is you have a bunch of different folks with different backgrounds, different biases, different skill sets, all evolving on different dimensions. And that makes for a really great mix too, because, you know, they're leaders of their own cross-functional pods. But then when you come together as a PM function, you actually learn in different ways because they all approach it very differently, right? They all have their own superpowers. It's like the, the Justice League. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we talked a little bit about your experience with Twitter and kind of bringing that PM mindset, you know, to the engineering and platform team. If you're giving advice to, you know, someone going in to a company that maybe doesn't have a good, strong product management culture, what advice would you give them about evangelizing the importance of product management inside the company? Yeah, I think what you want to do is you want people to agree on and align on the value of the role rather than getting into the specifics. It's a little bit like rolling out a tool internally, right? I'm just going to pick a random tool. Let's say product board. You want to be the person saying, hey, we could do, you know, backlog grooming and publishing better. 
And this is one tool that lets you do that. What you don't want to do is be the wonk who's like, we should use product board or else, right? And so I would say the same advice for somebody trying to launch a PM function is you want to tell people we should get better at articulating customer value and executing on that in an aligned fashion, not that we need to hire PMs ASAP, right? Because you want to be associated with solving a particular problem and helping a business scale versus being the pusher of a particular solution. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a really important point to talk about. You know, I mean, I think it implies too when you're in front of customers, because I know I often find that, you know, when I'm talking to customers, I'm not even necessarily pitching Pendo, but I'm saying these are reasons why you want to look at sentiment and usage data together. And these are how it can affect your decision making. I mean, it happens to be that, you know, a product like Pendo does that, right? But it's about talking to the PM community about like what they should be doing or what they the problems they're trying to solve and how they should think about that. And then indirectly that helps your product too. Yeah. I've, I've learned a lot from sellers. Like one of the the smartest things I've learned from one of our go-to-market leaders is you don't want to be pitching your product. You want to pitch your point of view, which is, do we agree on our point of view that this is a problem worth solving and this is the manner in which should we solve? And then you can come in and say, oh, and by the way, we think our product is world-class at solving that problem. But if they don't even agree on the problem that exists and it being worth solving, then you've missed the first part of the conversation, right? Yeah, I, I like that. I like taking and so a lot of time, point of view. Yeah. Yeah. And so where, where I've seen sort of PM introduction fail is where people never really bought in on what that person was supposed to be, right? Makes sense. Makes sense. I mean, as long as people share that, have that shared point of view, then it's likely to be a lot more successful. Where if people have different expectations about what product management should do in the company, you're less likely to have successful, I don't want to say infiltration, it's looking for the best word, but successful adoption of product management as a practice, as a craft within the company. Yeah, you really want it integrated into the organization versus bolted on, is what I would yeah. say. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's where I was starting to go with infiltration. Not the best word though. So let's talk about metrics and data for product management. You know, what, what are some of the North Star metrics that all product managers should keep an eye on, should handle, should be compensated for even? Yeah, I think as a product manager, you're really a representative of the business who's trying to connect it to customer value, right? And so I think the top level business metrics and business outcomes should be top of mind. So revenue, growth, reliability, et cetera. Now, what happens is any product team is not going to be able to meaningfully move those numbers week over week, month over month, quarter over quarter. And what they end up moving is a metric that moves that larger metric, right? And so that's why I think things like product adoption are a proxy for better retention over time, right? Or sort of release velocity is a good uh, function of like avoiding customer churn. And so I think you have to take the top level metrics and then figure out what are things that your team can actually move that connect. And I think there's tons of methodologies out there for like connecting, you know, top level metrics to metrics you can actually move. Like OKRs are a very common one, which are sort of misused a lot as well. But I think the biggest thing a PM can do is, is understand the strategic business context and then connect the dots in a way that shows, you know, A connects to B, B connects to C, and ultimately leads to Z. Yeah. Speaking of frameworks, talk to me about decision frameworks. You know, what do you use? What might you use if you're contemplating, you know, whether or not to ship a feature? You know, how do you approach some of those things? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a ton of great decision making frameworks out there. I'll I'll throw a couple out at you, which is I like Explore versus Exploit, which is something I, I picked up from Design Friends, right? Which is you have to know why you're doing something. You're doing it because it directly moves the needle, which is uh, Exploit, or 
you don't actually know what you should be doing, but this helps uncover more data so that you can form a better opinion, right? And I think a lot of times uh, folks get disheartened when they do an experiment and it's like, well, it didn't really move the needle. And you can go back and say, well, was the point to move the needle or was the point to uncover the right needle, right? So I'm a big believer in like, hey, you can explore and exploit at the same time. Just be cognizant of when you put something on the roadmap, what it's intended to do, right? So the framing of the why is important. One other framework that I recently learned about, which is just sort of blew my mind is it's from the head of product at Coda. It's called the Eigen question. I think he coined that term, which is basically rather than asking like a series of questions, can you actually come up with a meta question that if you're able to answer it actually answers all the cascading questions. And it's really a framing device of like, how do you get back to first principles and find the root question? And so I'm a huge fan of like, when you're debating a decision, it's like, let's not debate the tactics of the decision, but actually the root systemic issue that this decision will resolve for us, right? And so I think that's a great framing device. It's almost like asking why until you you can't ask anymore. Yeah. Can you give me an example? He has a great example. Uh, this is a blog post. I believe the guy's name is Shashir, where they talk about in the early days of YouTube, they couldn't figure out what sort of, uh, how far they wanted to go with with the creator product, right? And so at some point it was uh, basically, you know, where does our product stop and where do we look at partners for the rest of it? And so I think uh, trying to understand like where you might actually be able to add value versus you end up building a product or building a company that's sort of not your core competency was one example that they had used. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about storytelling. You know, that's an attribute. I think if you had to talk about the different skill sets that you're looking for in PMs, that would probably be one of them. I mean, I think, you know, PMs as a whole have to have some expertise at storytelling. And I'd argue, you know, successful companies have someone in that organization, in that product organization that may be a master at storytelling. You know, how do PMs get better at storytelling? Yeah, I think storytelling at the heart of it is like a value proposition, right? And so I would say rather than getting caught up in the mechanics of storytelling, which can manifest as getting better at slideware, getting better at public speaking, getting better at spec writing, you actually want to get better at the heart of identifying value. Because if there, if you can get to the crux of the value of the product, then the story mechanics are much easier to adopt, right? Like every time I've had to write a spec or give a talk, like all people, I start obsessing about the font and the color and all this stuff and how many words have I gone to. But the reality is the minute you find your thesis, everything else falls into place, right? And so what I tell people is reps definitely help, right? Iron out things if you're afraid of public speaking or if you're afraid of your red lines on your document, et cetera, reps definitely help. But what you really want to get better at is thinking deeply and refining your idea as to the real, real value of it. And so I think that is the crux of storytelling, because if you have this nugget that is that you have thought about and polished and really have thought about from 360 degrees, you can sell that to somebody, you can message that externally, you can get engineering to buy in, you can ideate with design. And so I think uh, really polishing the core of your idea is the best advice I can give in terms of storytelling. Awesome. I think that's great advice. So let's look to the future. What trends do you see upcoming in product? Yeah, I think uh, probably this is a little bit of my consumer now enterprise background creeping in, but I see those sort of two areas of product colliding. And so the first I'd say is within the enterprise space, you see tons of consumerization, right? You see users bringing their expectations of what a good 
delightful product is into the enterprise, into the company. So the way they communicate, collaborate, work, they want it to operate sort of like the products they choose to use at home. Right. And so, whereas enterprise historically has been sort of software that you kind of make fun of, I think now that expectation of like consumer delight is brought into the enterprise. On the flip side, with everything happening in the world in terms of security, data, privacy, et cetera, I think your average consumer is becoming a lot sharper in terms of what they're giving up when they're using a product, right? And so a lot of things that historically have been enterprise concerns, like risk, compliance, et cetera, are now being applied to consumer products. So I think really, whereas it used to be, oh, there's consumer PMs and enterprise PMs, I think consumer PMs would do well to learn a little bit about enterprise constraints and vice versa. Yeah, I do think we can learn a lot from the different B2B from B2C and B2C from B2B and, and, and vice versa. Well, I guess I covered both anyways. Uh, yeah. The other thing I found that was really interesting is like looking at the gaming industry and seeing how that could affect things like, you know, B2B products. Yeah, I think the gaming industry is interesting. Like you had asked about my career earlier, the thing that really wanted me, that got me in front of a computer uh, writing code was I wanted to write games. Like my first exposure was playing games on a computer and I was like, I want to build that, right? And so uh, I think there's a lot of stuff that comes out of the gaming industry that people don't quite know is is, or is, is treated as best practice that originated there, like virality, adoption theory, et cetera. A lot of innovation happens in the gaming industry. Yeah, yeah. I, I did a, a podcast with uh, Raul from Superhuman on it. It was, it was fun talking, you know, specifically about how gaming has affected B2B product design. I read a lot. And one of the, the best books I've read is called Masters of Doom, which is about the ID software guys and how dedicated they were to actually building the game they wanted to build to the point where they had a day job and then they would disassemble the computers because they didn't have their own computers, disassemble them, take them home, reassemble them, write code all night bring it back at seven in the morning and reassemble it to write tax software, which is their day job. Yeah, I've, I've listened to him uh, on audiobook. So I'm about halfway through that one. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's oh, very- I, I didn't spoil it for you. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, there's there's so many great stories. And as it turns out, I, I met John Romero too at a, oh. a, a conference I was speaking at. And I was like, you know, I'm not a person to be like, you know, normally starstruck by anything. And it's kind of like, hey, you're that guy. And then I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, you have to understand. I played this all through college. You know, I started wanting, I started, I, I got a computer science degree myself. And I was like, the reason I started writing code, the reason I became an expert in Pascal, as it turns out way back in the day, uh, was because of computer games, right? Because of this desire to build stuff. Uh, and it started with gaming and kind of evolved. I've never written anything for gaming. I don't write real code anymore. I'm in the, you know, product and marketing side of the house, but it all started from there too. No, I mean, there's, I think they didn't even use some of the right terms, but the idea of extensibility is like baked into some of those games. Like I remember playing Doom and you could edit the levels. And I, in the book, it talks about how, I forget if it was Carmack or Romero, but one of them was adamant that you had to leave it open so that people could edit it, innovate with it and extend it. Uh, and that's something we take for granted. Like every product today at some point has to have an extensibility story. Nobody wants to have like a closed product, right? And so that idea is 20, 30 years old. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as we're kind of getting to the end of this today, thought I'd turn to you, ask a couple questions about you. So what, what's your favorite product? Yeah, so th this question comes up a lot. So, you know, if you've ever interviewed for a product job, this question gets asked. And then um, I, I interview a lot of product managers. And at some point, I just added this into my repertoire of questions. And I was thinking recently about like, why do we even ask this question, right? And the thing I've landed at is probably we ask it because everybody asks it, but I think we also ask it because it's um, the thing you can't fake is taste. Like everybody has product taste. 
And so I think this question is a way of asking, like, what is your particular taste of product? What do you value in product, right? And so I'll give you a sort of a long-winded answer, which is one of the things that I'm obsessed about is the 80-20 principle, the Pareto principle, which is you just find it across the world, across industries. It just happens. Things line up that way. And when I worked at Twitter, one of the weirdest things was that used to agonize people was a lot of people are on Twitter, but only about 20% are tweeting actively. Right. And there were, there was two groups of people, which was one group would say, well, this is just, this is natural. This is what happens with everything, right? You know, 80% of the internet is 20% of the people creating content and 80% consume content. So this is a natural equilibrium, right? There was another group, which I was part of, which is, can you not break through? Can you not build a product that makes creation so easy that it takes somebody who has a consumer mindset and gets them to be a creator? Right. And I think a product that does that really well is fascinating to me because most things tend towards that. Right. And so the fact that I'm on a podcast right now, like I would always think of myself as somebody who would listen to a podcast, right? Not somebody who would be on a podcast. And I think technology brings us to a point where you go from consumer to creator. So to answer your question, I love products that would remove the barrier to creation. So I have two examples for you. The first is um, I've been writing a lot recently, but it used to be very hard. I, I love, you know, talk about being starstruck. If I were starstruck, it would be Ben Thompson of Stratechery fame. This guy half a dozen years ago was like, I'm going to write and that's going to be my living. And I'm going to create this entire stack myself. He said he uses something like 30 different tools to publish, Right. And I was like, I just don't have the brain power to figure out 30 different tools to write, to host, to distribute, et cetera. And I was like, I wish there was a product like that. And so I've stumbled onto something recently called Substack, which is, it just makes it really easy for me to write and publish like web, mobile, whatever I want. I control the content. I control the distribution. I don't have to worry about things like when it gets uh, bumped up, algorithms, any of that. It's, it's really designed for writers and I'm writing way more. I've gone from, I would spend 80% of my time reading and then 20% writing a draft blog post that I would never publish to now two to three times a week publishing a newsletter, right? And so it's just, it's amazing that with the right product capabilities and, and experiences, you can get somebody to switch from being a a consumer to a creator. The other example I'll give you is a little bit old school, which you might appreciate, which is Winamp. I'm a big music lover. I always loved Winamp because it was the one MP3 player where it took me from somebody who just listened to music to, I would be like, I want to get higher bitrate songs, right? And I'm going to customize the skin and I'm messing with the bass and the treble. And it actually took from, from just a music appreciator to somebody who was like, I could remix music. And so I love products that do that. So my, my two examples are Substack and Winamp. Yeah, the one that came to mind for me was Roblox, but I have little nieces, so. Uh, oh, that's idea, a great one. Yeah, the idea of them being able to build their own games and their own worlds and, and all of that is kind of interesting. So, well, one final question for you today, uh, three words to describe yourself. So the, the, the phrase I always used to describe myself is get shit done. I think, um, I think that's a good phrase or a good word. Do you have two more or is that your three? It's, it's, that's my three. I think the, you know, the HR approved version of that is bias for action. Is yeah. Like I, I consider myself as a very action oriented person. So, you know, the difference when I'm involved versus not is just things move. So awesome. Well, thanks. This has been a blast. Absolutely. Eric. Thank you so much for having me on.